Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, the leading management publication for the social sector in Australia. Hi, I'm Stuart Lloyd Hurwitz, Executive Director of Social Ventures Australia Consulting. I'm here with Robert Fitzgerald. Robert is a commissioner with the Productivity Commission and has been since 2004. Uh, Robert's also a board member of Social Ventures Australia. Uh, Prior to Robert's work with the Productivity Commission, he was a lawyer for more than 20 years. And we're here to talk about competition, choice, and contestability in the social sector. On March 16th, the Productivity Commission released its report making recommendations on how to apply increased competition, contestability, and informed user choice to the human services that were identified in the first stage study report to improve outcomes for users in the community as a whole. Robert, I'd like to probe a little bit about why competition is seen as important in the social sector and talk about how that's been increased or implemented by the government in the past decades? I think it's important, Stuart, just to go back in history a little bit where we were. The social sector or the non-profit sector or the third sector, whatever you want to call it, um, had its origin in Australia in two ways. Uh, Firstly, there was government provision, uh, particularly, for example, in the health area. But in Australia, for over 200 years, there was a very substantial civil society which evidenced itself in non-profit organisations who identified needs, uh, found the resources to meet those needs and pursued those goals. And over time, governments came in to support those particular projects. But life changed dramatically in Australia from about the late 1960s when governments provided state aid to Catholic schools. And then in the and then after that, in the 1975s, with the Whitlam government, very substantially providing support in areas such as disability services and um, homeless person services and others. And then the very big change happened in the 1990s, where we saw competition policy become a dominant economic theme within Australia, in fact, most Western worlds. And since that time, gradually, the social service sector has been opened up to more and more contestability, more and more competition. But the essence of it is not competition itself. Competition is simply a means to an end, and we lose sight of that. What changed was a desire to give consumers of social services greater choice in the services that they were given, the ability to move from one service to another. And if you want to give consumers greater choice, then there's a consequential impact. That is, you have to have a service delivery system that enables that choice to be exercised. And as a consequence of that, competition then flows. Mm. Now, many people actually think it's the reverse. And in government policy, there's a bit of that, where government said we've got to have competition, as if competition was the end. But the truth of the matter, if you look at our disability service sector, if you look at childcare, if you look at a whole lot of areas where there is growing contestability, it started by a simple notion, consumers or clients needed greater choice, greater mobility, and from that, competition flows. And the second part of that was a desire by governments to operate less directly and more through outsourced activities, both for-profit and not-for-profit. And that fed into having competitive markets, which the governments largely have created Hmm. in a whole lot of spaces. That's interesting. Um, If we turn our heads to the commercial world for a moment, that same motivation of consumer choice uh, hasn't classically been seen as the driver of why competition's been considered to be a good thing. 
there seem to be reasons why competition is good in the commercial uh, sector. Maybe it's just worth chatting about some of those. Sure. Well, competition is basically seen as a, as a driver of efficiency within um, commercial and other areas generally. It is the one that allows the mobility of both capital and human resources to areas which maximise, in, in the case of commercial activities, profit or return on investment. And so it's a mechanism by which contestability creates a dynamic marketplace but ultimately allows the mobility of capital and talent across that sector. And I think it is right that competition was largely driven from a market setting. And we've always had competition, you know, going back hundreds of years. Competition has been part of the trading nature of particularly Western countries, but uh, more generally. It is true, however, to be a highly successful competitor in an area which has clients and consumers. You've ultimately got to be customer-focused. You've got to be client-focused. But strangely enough, it's not the only thing that uh, motivates commercial operations. Um, the drive for uh, high returns on, on investment or profitability means that people are not necessarily committed to one particular group of customers. They can move their capital around. What you find in the social services is that it is much more um, sticky, as they say. In other words, organisations are committed to a particular cause, committed to a particular group of people, to meeting particular needs. And so it's not so much about where do I invest my capital to get the best returns. It's actually about how do I deliver the best for this group of people. So the commercial market is about efficiency and mobility, and the uh, non-profit market or the social service market has often been seen to have a slightly different driver, which is automatically more client-focused. Okay. Um, in the commercial sector, certainly one of the other aspects that competition is considered to encourage is innovation. Is, yes. that, is that true also in the social sector? Look, innovation is being driven, I think, from non-profit and commercial operations right across the board, including in the non-profit space. And if we go back prior to the 1990s, um, it's absolutely clear in Australia that the non-profits that were involved in the social services sector were very innovative. In fact, they, they literally saw the need and had to find out ways by which they would meet that need and how they would garnish both human and capital resources without necessarily the support of government. Since the 1990s, the, governor be, the governments became the determiner of how things would operate, who would provide the services. And whilst there has been significant innovation, I think it's been less so than we saw in the past. With the opening up of the market to a sort of a more competitive environment, I think we are going to start to see a re-emergence of innovation in the social services area. Now, could that have happened without a competitive model? The answer is yes, absolutely. But will, it, will competition and contestability drive innovation um, in, a, in a more substantial way? I think it will. So it's not exclusive to a competitive marketplaces, but it does. Uh, competitive marketplaces can drive that. Okay. For our audience who may, may be seeing this from a client or from an organizational perspective and not have the familiarity of how the government policy levers work, what are the types of things that governments control to either accelerate or to attenuate the degree of competition in the sector? Well, the thing we have to understand in the social services market is that, in fact, these are government-designed um, and regulated marketplaces. They are not free markets in any way, shape or form. So when government ministers say to you, oh, we've created a free market, that's an illusion. It's not true. These are highly designed and, and regulated markets. And in a sense, they need to be because they're about the public good. They're delivering services that are vital for the functioning of a society and a community. 
And in many senses, it is the responsibility of government to act as the stewards of those, of those markets and for the delivery of those services. So what you see in the social services area is the government is an instrumental player in the design of the market, the products and services that will be delivered in that market. Often they are the price fixes, for example, in disability services, health services, um, and to some degree even in childcare services. Um, they are a sort of significant funder, albeit directly now through um, clients rather than as direct providers of that funding. So governments have an exceptionally important part to play. But one of the other things that's emerging, and we haven't done it well, is they are also the oversighters of those markets. And we've seen in VET, uh, the VET area, um, gross exploitation by um, third-party operators in that market. Now, much of that was predictable, and yet we failed to create a market and at the same time um, control what would be naturally um, areas of exploitation by operators. And there are many, many other examples of that. So governments have a very important role in trying to ensure the market operates in an ethical and fair manner because the ultimate losers in these marketplaces are very vulnerable people, whether they're students or whether they're people with disability or whether they're people that are, have ill health. So in this marketplace, we're actually dealing with very vulnerable clients and the government has an absolute obligation to ensure the market operates effectively and fairly. And so, Robert, how in the last 10 or 15 years has the government exercised or developed that uh, right? Well, when we go back, we can see one of the first areas where there was a very uh, substantial design of a market by the government was in relation to the job market, or where we got rid of the uh, Commonwealth Employment Service and we created a market of not-for-profit providers and for-profit providers to provide job seekers with employment services. And there we see the, all the features of it. The government chose the services that would be delivered, it chose the organisations would deliver, it fixed the prices and it had continued to change the market through the contracting over a period of time. The second biggest one we've seen is the um, National Disability Insurance Scheme, which again is the same thing. It's taking largely a government-controlled and often uh, directly operated market through the um, government services to a market where there will be both for-profit and not-for-profit operators. And again, the same thing. The design of the system, who's eligible for it, the services that will be provided, the pricing for those services and ultimately the oversight are all within the hands of government. Nevertheless, the actual providers, for-profits and not-for-profits, and the market will be stimulated by where people with disability take their funding, that is, where they purchase their services. Now, there are elements in that market that won't work as well, and there are some areas that probably shouldn't be open to a market model. And I think that's one of the other things we've got to be very careful about. The market model does not work across all social services or human services areas. And one of the great mistakes governments make is to believe that you've got to have a 100% market coverage. Now, that's not the case at all. But for the majority of, say, people with disability, the NDIS, if they're eligible, um, will in fact be a market-driven model in which they do have some considerable control and influence. So thank you. I'm very interested to come back to that a little bit later. It might be worth spending a little bit of time unpacking our understanding for our audience. What is the role of the Productivity Commission in, in all of this? Uh, you yourself have been a commissioner for mm -hmm. a number of years. Tell us a little bit about, if you will, how the Productivity Commission was formed and what its role is in uh, yeah. this process. Well, the Productivity Commission's been a, an organisation that's had a long history. It was um, originally the Tariff Board, then it became the Industry Assistance Commission, then the Industry Commission, 
and then in the mid-1990s, the Productivity Commission. But largely it's a body that undertakes inquiries and or research for the government in relation to economic, social and environmental matters. And so its breadth of activity is very wide, but it's largely um, receives its terms of reference from the government. Since about uh, uh, the mid-1990s, there's been an emphasis of not only looking at economic issues and industry-based issues, but also social policy issues. So the Commission's looked at the whole of the not-for-profit sector, which I, I chaired. It's looked at aspects of the health area. It's looked at aspects of education. It's looked at um, aspects of childcare um, and the NDIS itself. What I think has been clear is that you need sustainable services over a long time in the social services area. This is an area where we have what's called wicked problems. They are long-term problems, whether it's in relation to uh, victims of domestic violence, whether it's abuse of children, whether it's the maltreatment of particular groups. So in this space, what we're trying to say is what is the way that we achieve um, effective organisations in the delivery of those services? How do we drive innovation? How do we drive a greater opportunity for consumers to exercise choice where that's appropriate? But also, unlike the commercial areas um, outside of social policy, it actually is about sustainability. This is not an area in which you can have rapid movement in policy changes and rapid organisational changes affecting consumers. So I think the reports we've produced understand very well that the human services or social services area um, requires a unique approach which draws from good quality policy that's used in the commercial world, such as competition. Um, But it also then overlays that and says, however, we've actually got to provide long-term solutions, long-term services for a particular group of people for where there are um, entrenched problems. And that's particularly true where we're talking about entrenched disadvantage. So if we look to the next couple of years, would you say that the trend that we're seeing is for more competition or better regulated competition? How would you describe how you see the, the market, no, the quasi-government market uh, evolving in that space? I think all of the nine governments are committed to enhancing the ability of consumers to exercise choice. And for the locus of control in relation to that choice to be with the consumers, not with the government or the providers. If that holds, then what we are going to see is a continued view that competition is the best way to deliver that, both between not-for-profits and for-profit operators. So I think those trends will continue. I think where the change will be is that we will have to learn from the mistakes of the past. Firstly, that a competitive market-based model doesn't apply in all services and all parts of those service systems. There are areas where a different approach, a direct approach, for example, block funding by government, still is appropriate. The second thing is, well, I've come to understand that whilst consumers have choice, only about 10 to 15% of those will actually use that choice in an active way. Um, Now, they're called the marginal consumers. And in nearly all markets in Australia, only a small percentage of the total market actually switches providers, having made the initial choice. That will also be true in the social sector. Now, that doesn't mean the markets are ineffective. It means that that 10 to 15% of people that are actively engaged in trying to find better services provide benefits to all of those in that market. Now, a lot of providers entering into this market think that, you know, there's going to be rapid switching, rapid movement of clients. My suspicion is that won't be true. Only a small section of that market will move, but that's enough 
to keep the market active. The third thing is I think we'll start to see um, different forms of capital investment come into this particular areas of social, um, social issues and human services, uh, which may be attracted to the fact that there is a more rigorous marketplace approach being um, adopted. Um, on the other hand, it, it's true to say that this is going to cause enormous disruption within the, within the uh, particular industry areas. And competition is, a, is, is not some panacea. It has as many problems as government-controlled operations, but they're different. Mm. And at the moment, the trend in Australia is absolutely to see greater contestability between providers. Um, but it's based on, I would hope, the consumer or the customer being at the centre of that. And in fact, Robert, much of what you've laid out for us has been under the umbrella of consumer choice. But to what extent is choice a, a, an illusion for a majority of disadvantaged or vulnerable people in that, especially those seeking emergency services, is, is choice really something that's important to them? No. For many of the people, both people um, that are, have uh, particular vulnerabilities, uh, choice is not the main issue at all. Even in the area of disability, for, for many people with disability, um, it's also not the driving force at all. For people with physical disability, high cognitive abilities, it is. They want greater choice and control. Overwhelmingly, people that are in vulnerable circumstances want reliability of service. They want a service that meets their needs. But they also want the ability to move if that's not being achieved. So for the vast majority of people, particularly in family and community services, they're driven by, as I say, reliability and a service that's appropriate to their needs. But they also do want the ability to move if those services aren't being delivered. But for them, it's a quite different profile. And hence, you've got to be very careful. There are many aspects of social services which will not lend themselves to a pure competitive model. And that's not a failure. It's simply a recognition that that's not the main um, way to address their particular needs. So where would we not want to see uh, competition or, or choice? We want some choice, but competition, um, in, for example, in a number of the family services areas, areas to children, um, areas where there is um, a very long-term problems um, associated with communities. What people are after there is stability. Now, that doesn't mean we want monopoly providers, but in fact, you don't need to have a dozen providers. You can achieve that with a small number who work together in a collaborative environment. So for many of the wicked problems, what we actually need is a number of providers who do provide difference and do provide some choice. But unlike in the commercial world, we actually need collaborative models as well. Mm. And that's a huge tension. Can you be in competition with people and yet collaborate? And the answer to that is yes, and it's absolutely essential. Now, some people in government say to non-profit operators, oh, you can't collaborate. You know, you'll be breaching the competition laws if you do. That is complete nonsense. You can be competitive in terms of pricing or trying to attract different clients, but you can be collaborative in trying to work out what is best practice and how you actually raise the quality of services. So at the moment, Australians are being sold a bit of a pup about this. They see competition as now being contradictory to collaborative approaches. And my view is that that is completely wrong. There is many areas in which collaboration is the only way you're going to achieve long-term sustainable outcomes for people, particularly where there are wicked problems. Several of the submissions in the Productivity Commission's recent report were along the lines of what you're describing, which is that uh, collaboration will be impacted negatively if there's more competition. And I suppose there's, there's several aspects of that that we could discuss. One is that there almost seems to be 
a romantic notion that prior to competition being increased, that there was tremendous collaboration in the sector. Was that your experience as well? The sector's always talked uh, a language and not lived it in reality, and that's one of them. I do think in relation to policy, I mean, the sector... Driven, given the fact that it is a genuinely civil society-based sector, it's come out of the society itself and it's very strong by worldwide standards. There's always been a desire to work together around common problems and often develop common policy. But on the ground, they've always been pretty competitive. You know, there was a time, I remember 20 or 30 years ago, where organisations used to talk about my poor. They just sort of fight about, you know, who's poor they are. Now, that sounds shocking and terrible, but it was sort of the reality. So the notion that they were all, uh, you know, was a big love-in and everybody got on well together isn't true. But what was true is, and you see these in the peak bodies, is that they came together about big policy and they worked on campaigns and they worked to achieve good outcomes. When the competitive model came in, for reasons which I really don't understand, it was like, well, we can't do that anymore. Now, that is simply not true. It's not true legally and it's not true in any other way that I understand. And so what we've got to do is to go back and say, whilst we are sort of trying to find customers and consumers for our services, the causes and the issues that underline those people's needs and the policies that are needed to address those can only be developed in a collaborative model. But even if we're just talking about best practice, it's absolutely essential that people come together and and learn from each other and are educated by each other. Because at the end of the day, this is about vulnerable people. This is not about the survival of the organisation. This is not the commercial world where this is about return on investment and the survival of that organisation to achieve that goal. These organisations exist for one purpose only, and that is to improve the quality of lives of the people they're dealing with. Now, that must supersede the individual organisation's own desires, and to achieve that, collaboration is essential. And governments have got to stop got to stop saying to organisations that you can't collaborate. You know, you're now in competition models, therefore you can't talk to each other. That is simply not true. And the sector must resist it. And it doesn't matter whether they're for-profits or not-for-profits, if they're in this space, the common good of the clients must uh, override the organisational interests for growth and development. And if it doesn't, it'll fail. Would your sense be that peak bodies and advocacy groups have found it more difficult to enlist the support of their larger members because those larger members don't want to be contributing to each other's success? I think there's been a weakening of the collaborative effort and the collective effort and a splintering of um, advocacy bodies and groups generally. In fact, it's quite common now to see breakout groups all over the place. And you're right, Stuart, sometimes it's based on size, sometimes it's based on ideology. But there's no doubt that the advocacy space has been splintering. And I think part of that has been the competitive uh, position that we've we've spoken about. Um, Now, in the end... um, Industry can organise itself in whichever way it wants, including the not-for-profit sector. But there does have to be this notion that you are about a common purpose in relation to particular groups. And some of the boards and some of the new um, CEOs and managers that have come into the sector, I think, don't have that appreciation. I think they are very focused on the growth and development of the institution, the organisation. But in this space, that isn't the main game. Now, I know that's antithetical to some organisations, and some boards just don't buy that at all. But I've got to say to you, if we are actually about dealing with disadvantaged people, whatever that is, because of ill health or because of other disadvantages, uh, that's the main game. 
And so I hope that organisations, whilst they want to grow and develop, they want to be seen to be market leaders and so on, at the end of the day work with other organisations um, for those common goods. And it's really important because social problems are by nature very long-term and very intractable. They take a lot of effort over a long time by a lot of people. And even then, we only dent it. You know, some of these problems are intergenerational. Certainly in our experience at SVA Consulting, we've seen a variety of different players with quite different perspectives on the degree of collaboration or, or, or competitiveness that they perceive their organization should be uh, proceeding with. I, I suppose this all brings us to a, what do we believe should happen now? What do we believe should happen from a government policy perspective? And how do we help organizations better navigate that tension between being competitive and being collaborative to, as you, you know, as we would all agree, as the ultimate purpose, which is better outcomes for the lives of vulnerable people and the people we're supporting. Well, a couple of things. Firstly, if we go just to the government level and the development of the policies that underpin all of what we're talking about, is the governments do have to embrace a notion of co-design of policy and uh, of market development. Um, what's very clear to me is the government alone um, does not, is not the holder of wisdom when it comes to these issues. And we do need to start to have um, a much greater collaboration in the design phase between providers, of uh, those that represent clients or consumers and the governments themselves. The second thing is there has to be a much greater understanding of how markets operate, both in terms of their strengths and their weaknesses, and the roles that government have in relation to the stewardship of those markets. These are not free markets and absolutely can't be left to the vagaries of the marketplace. And so governments have a very important role to understand markets, not only in their design, but also so how they're going to maintain the quality and integrity of those markets and providers. The second thing is the, the providers in this marketplace do need to start to look at how they can collaborate more effectively, yet at the same time maintain their own individual pursuits and um, goals as organisations. And the collaboration surely has to be centred in what's in the best interests of those that they're seeking to serve or work with. And I think pay, having a best interest model actually matters. If we're in the best interests of students, if we're in the best interests of people with disability, we're in the best interests of people that are suffering long-term mental health conditions, it focuses our attention and shows us how we can and need to collaborate. And collaboration will, in fact, drive innovation as well. Mm. So individual effort is terrific, and there are the individual innovators. But sometimes you need a collaboration to drive uh, innovation. I think the third thing is the consumers themselves are going to have to become um, stronger and uh, in their own advocacy. And I think that the rise of advocacy groups um, will, in fact, continue. Now, governments don't like advocates very much, and there's a general uh, drive by governments to suppress advocacy. But my view going forward is that um, consumers will need to become stronger, um, both individually and collectively. And I think we will actually start to see the re-emergence of consumer advocacy um, going forward. Now, whether that's a response to market failures, whether that's a response to the loss of trust in institutions, including providers of services, which we see, I'm not sure, but I actually think we will see um, a more powerful consumer base emerge over time in these social service issues. Robert, one of the things that you've mentioned is that this should be done with the best interests of the end users, the stakeholders, mm. the beneficiaries in mind. 
In SVA Consulting's experience, we see many well-intentioned organizations who believe they have the best interests of the consumers, clients in mind, but aren't able to really associate and to compare whether they're doing the same kind of work that another organization mm. is doing because they lack an outcomes framework that takes the best interests and clarifies and, and in some cases quantifies them. Is that a direction that you see being helpful in this vein? Look, I think there's a couple of directions which have been emerging over time. Uh, certainly the notion towards outcome reporting and outcome focus is something that both governments and uh, non-government organisations have embraced more than in the past. And so we have been moving to outcomes frameworks, and even where there's still government-directed funding uh, in terms of um, um, outcomes uh, reporting as part of that. When you move to a consumer-focused outcome, the danger is to say, well, the consumers, if they come to our service, they must be satisfied with the outcome, therefore I don't need to do anything more. In other words, the consumer will tell us, that's not going to happen in this place because the vast majority of consumers are not mobile. As I've said before, some will be, but most aren't. So you do have to find out ways by which you can actually identify whether or not the outcomes are, in fact, being delivered. And I think there's been quite a lot of work to do that. Many organisations are nowhere near understanding whether they're actually achieving the outcomes. They can tell you about the number of people that have accessed their services, but whether they can actually tell you about the quality of um, life for those people after that access or the quality of that experience, that's a very different thing. The, the other one that's emerged very strongly, and SVA has been part of that, is impact reporting. So are we actually, as an organisation, making an impact in the way, in the areas that we as an organisation um, thought we should or want to? An impact investment goes beyond just the outcomes for individual clients. It goes, to, you know, the it takes into account the externalities. It takes into account those additional um, um, issues and impacts on community more, more significantly. Um, so I think this notion of impact accounting for impact or um, income uh, or impact uh, performance monitoring um, has been a very helpful tool. It all and it, it moves beyond just outcomes. It actually says, are we impacting? on society in the way that we wanted to. Um, for some organisations, that's a very narrow construct. For others, it's very broad. But I do think the outcome focus, which has been emerging over time, and now this desire to actually measure impact, I think are both very helpful. Um, otherwise, all we know is actually what we do. But what we want to know is what is what we're doing actually making a difference? And if so, how is it impacting on the lives and the communities that uh, we're operating in? So I think those trends are very good. I think they're imperfect, but they're, they're certainly much better than previously where we just simply reported on effectively inputs and occasionally outputs, but really never got to outcomes and impacts. One of the questions that's raised by people who are concerned that we're dialing up the competition in the sector maybe too much is that it reduces our ability to focus on prevention and early intervention because that's a much more difficult characteristic to actually sure. get a measure for and therefore to compete on. How do we ensure that the tremendous value that is usually ascribed and evidence-based on early prevention is actually not diminished in the future? Well, competition is really being used in terms of a model of between um, service providers. Um, so you could have competition within, for example, early intervention or prevention models, if you like, but it may be an area where, in fact, the competition model is not the right model. 
In fact, what you want to do is to have a carefully crafted group of providers that provide a particular type of service, and that may be a model that requires direct government funding. And there's no problems with that. And so as long as we understand that prevention, early intervention are essential features in changing the life's outcomes, say, for young people or people with earlier um, onset conditions, then we can then say that's what we need to deliver. Then we go to the next stage and say, what's the best way to deliver? Now, if that happens to be by a selected number of providers that are directly funded, so be it, if that's the right model. If there is room for competition in it and that can work effectively, so be it. So my view, again, is what we, the way we do it is only means to the ends. So my own view is competition neither enhances nor destroys our ability to deal with preventative and early intervention. What's the struggle there is actually recognising just how important that is and then funding it. Now, whether you fund it directly by government, whether you fund it through the consumers, is actually a second-order issue. What we're struggling with is to get enough investment by governments and others into that space. Mm. The secondary part is who delivers it. And I don't actually think competition in and of itself um, makes that huge difference. But I get the point. It doesn't mean the competition is necessarily right for those particular areas. And in fact, I can think of a number of areas where it's probably not. Such as what? Well, for example, early intervention in relation to uh, families where the children are at risk of going into care. It is more likely than not that you need a selected number of providers uh, that are well-skilled and well-developed in that area. Um, that's an area that, whilst you might have a number of providers, competition in itself will make no difference at all. Um, this is a, a, a one particular area. So there could be other areas as well. Robert, there's some markets that are unable to be served by a certainly a, a multi-provider competitive environment. What happens in those instances? How do we manage that? Well, what we're doing is trying to um, design or force on some of these thin markets a market model which is simply um, not going to work, and we're frankly wasting time and energy doing that. We have to recognise that in some remote areas, in some regional communities, and in some aspects of the social area, um, they are not attuned at this stage to competitive models. So we simply need to acknowledge that. And acknowledging that we're going to try a different approach is not a failure. It is simply an acknowledgement of the circumstances we're in. But one of the dangers we've got at the moment is a desire to have, you know, one size fits all. And that's just simply not the case. So in relation to thin, very thin markets where the competitive model doesn't work, we have to just simply recognise that and, and then try to develop a service delivery system that's appropriate to those communities or that particular cohort. Um, and uh, that can be the direct government funding or variations on that theme. So, for example, um, in the aged care area for homeless men and women, um, the market model is not an appropriate model in that case. There are probably aspects in the disability area which are not appropriate for that market model. And there's certainly some locations where that model, you're just simply trying to push something. And in the end, all you do is cause disruption in the lives of people. So I think what we've got to do is be more honest about it. Australia is not a nation in which you can apply the same principles everywhere and in every area, and you don't need to. The fact that you capture 80, 85, 90% um, is, is sufficient. So I suppose two, two questions there would be, one, it seems that the way of identifying 
the thin market is either because of a geographic reason, a, a specificness of, of the service that's being delivered. Yes, or are those they're probably the two. It's either a geographic basis in which there's just simply not room in that market uh, for more than one or two players. Uh, the second thing is sometimes the nature of the condition that you're trying to deal with uh, doesn't lend itself to people being mobile. And what it requires is intensive care, um, and that's likely to be most cost-effectively delivered through a single provider. Um, so there can be other factors, but they're largely the areas. What I'm, what I'm just simply saying is we can't keep trying to force models on in areas where it's not appropriate. We spend a lot of effort doing that for very little gain, frankly. So you create a, a disability agency that's administering the National Disability Insurance Scheme. How can we have those exceptions become part of that model? Or is it, you know, isn't it difficult for that momentum that's been gathered the, to, 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 to the respond to that. The difficulty is simply not wanting to do it or not having enough foresight to do it. The difficulty is people become fixated on the means, not the ends. And so, again, I go back to it. Whilst I'm in favour of competition and been around competition policy for a long time, there are parts that it just doesn't operate or operate in the same way. That's simply an acknowledgement. So it's in the design phase that you've got to acknowledge that. Mm. And if it's not in the design phase, you've got to adjust it as those issues become apparent. The difficulty is the proponents of the schemes think that's a failure. And my view is it isn't. It's actually designing the markets, given they are totally designed markets, these are not free markets, in a way that most uh, effectively delivers for the consumers in that particular environment. So you adjust accordingly. Now, in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, there are um, organisations both within the Department of uh, Social Services um, and in the new Quality and Safeguards Commission whose task is to actually look at the market and how it's operating. Now, you would do that and then, hopefully, you'll learn from that and you moderate the design of the actual scheme itself. My view is you should do it earlier, but if we look at the VET market, we allowed the VET market to develop in a way that ultimately has been destructive to students, um, destructive to many providers, but frankly overall um, has significant problems as public policy. And those problems were identifiable very early. But the failure to redesign the scheme to uh, mitigate against these sorts of uh, um, adverse um, impacts that were starting to emerge, I think uh, we were very, very slow to act. And we shouldn't be so slow to act um, in these matters. Robert, we've seen more and more boards of not-for-profit organizations have people with vast commercial experience coming onto the board. And it's interesting to consider and to reflect on the differences in how those players operate in this market than their commercial counterparts might in commercial markets. What is your guidance or what do we need our board members to do for these not-for-profit organizations to recognize the specific challenges facing this quasi-market? So I think the first thing that people coming into this particular space is to try to understand the space they're in. And that sounds uh, really very simple, but it's quite complex. Yes, you're entering into an area which ostensibly looks like any other business, but they're not. The one thing about not-for-profits is they are not any other business. And whilst they're very similar in characteristics to the way in which you would operate a commercial enterprise, there are some things that just make them fundamentally different. And it's the difference that the community values. People don't value not-for-profits and provide enormous tax concessions for them and benefits over and above that they give to any other organisation because they're the same as those organisations. The only reason the Australian people provide billions of dollars worth of benefits over time 
is because of the difference. And what are the differences? The difference is being absolutely focused on the outcomes of the clients and consumers over the long term. It's about a common purpose or a social purpose which drives the activity rather than the growth and development of the organisation itself. It's about the way in which you do the business and the ethical context within which you operate. And those factors are important. Now, some people say, well, a hospital run by the government, a hospital run by for profit, a hospital run by a faith-based organisation, they're all the same, there's no difference. That is not true. They may, in fact, look the same and they may operate in the same way in terms of the actual quality of care. But there will be characteristics in relation to the way in which they are governed and which they operate and the purposes for which they operate. So, for example, you know, in the Catholic healthcare space, St Vincent's Hospital runs a private hospital, a public hospital, but it also runs outreach for the poor, for homeless people, for drug and alcohol. It used to run the hospice as well, particularly for HIV patients when, in fact, they were scourged, you know, to the rest of the organisations. So when we actually look at it, they, my point for boards is to understand the actual organisation you're operating and the space within which they're operating. And it really comes back to those sorts of fundamental points. Uh, the second thing is we, the not-profit sector does need the skills from the commercial world. Um, there are many, many areas uh, that um, uh, commercial uh, uh, people from the commercial sector bring to the sector which will improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the sector. But they have to be used within this context um, for which a social purpose organisation exists and operates. So the one thing I hate hearing is when people say, oh, we're the same, or they aspire to be the same as a for-profit operator. As soon as you hear that, you know something's missing. Something in this equation is missing. Now, it's got nothing to do with the quality of service that you provide. After all, nearly all our human services operate according to codes, codes of conduct, accreditation, mandatory standards. So in terms of operationally, they all operate in the same way. Childcare centres are a classic example. But the way in which the organisation operates and the purpose for which it operates is somewhat different. Now, I don't want to overstate it, but one thing I can tell you is not-for-profits are not the same as for-profits, and frankly, they shouldn't be. But if they are, the community is certainly not going to continue to allow these enormous benefits to be provided through the tax system um, if they're exactly the same. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And the not-for-profit sector needs to be very careful um, that uh, by trying to look the same and be the same, um, ultimately the community will say, well, we'll treat you the same. Robert, one of the ways in which not-for-profits and for-profits are not the same is that in the for-profit world, mergers and acquisitions happen with uh, great regularity. Uh, we could argue how effective they actually are. That could be a topic sure. of a separate interview. Um, but certainly th th that is one of the mechanisms for strengthening the sector is through healthy merger, acquisition, and partnership work. In the not-for-profit sector, we haven't seen a lot of that to no. date. And part of that, in our view, is tied up in two factors. One factor is a board's risk tolerance. So boards are not taking risks that they would in their commercial board positions in the boards Correct. that they sit on for not-for-profits. That's number one. And number two, there seems to be almost a uh, identity challenge for boards that they see their interests tied up with the success of their individual organization. And should that organization no longer operate, they would be a loss of identity or a, a loss sure. of purpose. Is that inhibiting or preventing a healthier sector by not allowing for the types of mergers that we've seen in other sectors? Well, I think you've identified two of the key reasons. There's no question at all 
that there is a reluctance within the not-for-profit space to to merge with other organisations. And so what you have seen is is collaborative ventures, um, you know, federated organisations and so on and so forth, but not too many absolute mergers and acquisitions even less so. Um, I think that's going to change, but not dramatically. I think we will see organisations, um, particularly in these very um, market-rich uh, uh, environments that we're starting to see develop, who will, in fact, uh, start to merge or acquire other organisations. So I think that will change. But you're right, the barriers are quite substantial. Um, one of the things that does happen in the not-for-profit space is even people from the commercial world absolutely do reduce their tolerance for risk in it. Now, that's actually true. And I'm not sure why it happens, but when they move from the commercial world into the not-for-profits, they almost change. They stop being... They, in fact, they, they often lose what the very thing that you actually ask them on the board to be. And risk is one of those, and I'm not sure what lies behind it. But the second point you're right is about the identity of the organisation. And I think there is a, a notion that uh, you know our job is to maintain the rich heritage of these organisations. Because these organisations often go back you know, 50, 100, 150, 200 years. And they do have an extraordinary um, heritage, if you like. And people want to maintain that. And my point is, if you go to the best interest framework and you actually start to say, we're actually about a social purpose, and we're actually about delivering genuine life-enhancing impacts for particular groups, that's got to drive your motivation. And if that can be better achieved by coming together with another one or two agencies, I would like to think some boards are courageous enough to do that. Now, you won't do that if you're just focused on the organisation. You'll make decisions that are organisational. And that's, I think, what happens in the commercial world. I think there's a good case for mergers and acquisitions because it may be in the best interests of particular groups. But if I can just be clear, I think we'll end up in exactly the same space as business. In Australia, in every industry, there's probably four, five or six very large national players. Then you have another subset of reasonably significant-sized regional players, and then you have a multitude of small um, operators. Now, that's exactly what will happen in the not-for-profit space in each of the human service areas. We will see a small number of very large organisations, some of which will arise from mergers and acquisitions. We'll see regional players of reasonable size, and then we're going to see a plethora of small ones. And I think we will simply mimic what happens in most marketplaces. So we're not going to see the destruction of all small agencies, nor are we going to see 20 or 30 huge players. Australia does not operate in that way. Um, we operate in a very clear way. And frankly, I think that's going to start to emerge. Some of those national players will be by, nation, by just ordinary growth, uh, but some of them will be uh, by acquisition or merger, and I think we're starting to see that. But it won't be as great as people um, currently predict, I think. Uh, but we'll just wait and see. Um, it's an evolution in the, in the market. But the, but the notion of maintaining the rich heritage of the organisation and not letting that go... Um, is very, very strong. And that cultural differences that exist between organisations um, is a very strong barrier. Now, sometimes it's a plus, but sometimes it's a barrier. Is there a confusion about the fiduciary duty of a board member in the not-for-profit space? There can be, if you see it in a very narrow term. So directors are required to act in the best interests of the company or the organisation. It's the first goal. And that simply leads you to question, well, what is that best interest? If the best interest is to serve the needs of particular people in a particular way, 
then that gives you a particular um, view of what best interest means. If you see it as really narrow, and this is about the growth and development and the financial stability of the organisation in that narrowest form, then you'll make decisions accordingly. It's absolutely clear. The law is clear. But what's not clear is, is your breadth of vision when you're looking at best interest. So we've seen this very specifically with some uh, organizations in the disability space that were founded by family members Correct. for the benefit of their family and people with a disability in their family. They got together, they created this organization, and now the organization's several yep. years on grown a bit. But the question remains for them, are they there to protect the interests of their family members and of the members of the organization, or do they have a broader remit to having done a very good service for a set of people, extend that and offer that to other people. How would you help them make that It's an decision? evolution. What they've done is by founding these organisations to support their relatives, and you're absolutely right, in the disability area, that was largely how it came about. Um, they have to see themselves in part of an evolution where they've got a broader remit or a broader responsibility to a broader group of people. So, in fact, it's building on the extraordinary commitment and dedication of those people but it's actually helping it to evolve to be something even bigger, greater, and um, even more beneficial to the Australian society. And that's a journey. Now, some people can't make that journey and they break out or they become, uh, they become uh, critics of the organisation saying they've lost their purpose and mission. Now, sometimes they have, and it's good that those people hold us to account. But we are in part of an evolution, and many of these small organisations, particularly in the disability area, are going to be very substantial. But the benefits that those organisations can deliver for a broader group of people are very exciting and very necessary. So I hope those people that founded these organisations can in fact help shape and guide and be part of that evolution. But I fully understand that right at the moment in the not-for-profit space, and particularly in the disability area, there are grave concerns that both the competition, the market itself, the institutional um, governances are moving these organisations away from their founding base. Um, I don't think they are in terms of the actual goal, but I think for many that were in part of these small organisations, I think what they're seeing is very difficult. I just hope they can be part of that evolution. But I would make one comment. There is a place for small, very focused organisations. Uh, I don't buy the nonsense that people are saying is that there's no room for small players. I don't think that's true. And if we look at the commercial market, it's not true either. Mm -hmm. There are always very significant places for smaller operators um, who, who, who can meet the needs of people either based on location or particular characteristics in a way that, frankly, the large organisations can't. The larger they get, the less flexible they get. And that's the one good thing about small organisations. They may lack scale, but they are very adaptable and very flexible. And that's, there's always a role for those people. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash. Forward slash.